This is Mark Steiner, and right now you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future, right here on The Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today we're speaking about the Beginner Farmer Training Program, a project of Future Harvest CASA, which stands for the Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture. We'll hear from some fascinating young farmers, but first we'll hear the second part of our program, A Game of Chicken. Last week we brought you the first part of a very interesting town hall conversation that we taped on the eastern shore in Princess Anne, Maryland, with citizens from across Delmarva. We met at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore to discuss poultry industry expansion, community health, and local control, and hear how concerned citizens in the Delmarva region are beginning to organize to keep their rural communities and local waterways healthy. Our panelists included Dr. Gillian Fry from the Johns Hopkins University Center for a Livable Future, Dr. Kirkland Hall, a longtime member and former president of Somerset County's NAACP chapter. He's also the advisor to UMES's chapter. Maria Payan, consultant with Socially Responsible Agriculture Project and with the Assateague Coastal Trust. And Backbone Corridor Neighborhood Association spokesperson, Lisa Inzarillo. The conversation was presented by the Assateague Coastal Trust and Assateague Coastal Keeper. Let's talk about some of the well, some things that came up here, which had to do with power. But here's Dr. Jacoby Wilson from the University of Maryland School of Public Health. So a couple things. So we're talking about poultry farming. And I was... When the uh, when the doctor spoke about his favorite, his chicken was being favorite. I always tell my wife, chicken's my favorite fruit. I love chicken. <laughs> I eat chicken just about every other day. Had some today, Subway sandwich. I had some uh, two days ago when I on my salad and barbecued it last week. So I eat a lot of chicken. I don't have a problem with chicken. The the issue is for me when you think about power, we talk about empowerment with an E M and and I and that's like giving people power. We need to talk more about empowerment with the IN, how we connect people to the power that they already have. I think with the, the, strength, the thing that you're hearing a lot now is how we need to make sure all citizens are actively engaged. To be an engaged citizen is not voting. Voting is the minimum that you do to be an engaged citizen, right? To really be an engaged citizen, you, you need to be going to the meetings. You, just, you can't expect your representatives to do their job. No politician goes, goes to politician school. I'll say it one more time. No politician goes to politician school. Think about what I just said. So the, the idea is you have, to be there, uh, you have to be there to provide them with input about what are your needs as a constituent. If you're not there, who, who is there? You have industry and business interests. So what you're hearing about these various types of industries that are coming in, and I mentioned the jobs versus environment argument, you have the power to control what comes in, but you have to participate. And you have to, uh, again, empower the politicians to do that job. If you don't do that, then they're going to do what they always do and say, well, we bring, we're, we're going to bring in jobs. So I think what has to happen is, and you have NWCP here, is for, for many folks, when we, when we vote, we think we've done our job. I think another part of what we need to do is you have to hold your representatives accountable, so not just the town level, but going to the state Going to the, you know, going to Annapolis and holding them accountable. So you have to make power work for you. If you're not doing those things, you'll keep having these threats. And we need to flip these threats to be opportunities. So you think of, you so think about uh, how you can um, use power that you have to really have more of a community development model. 
What do you want to have in a community? We're talking about a lot of the bad stuff. What do you want to have? How do you, what's the vision for the community? You have to be part of that vision and process. These are the types of industries we want in our community, and this is how you can make it happen. You make it happen by holding the representatives accountable. You make it happen by going to the state house. You make it happen by being a town, uh, the town council, building a zoning board, building a planning board, going to the housing meetings. I mean, going to the economic development. So you have to do that. And it's a lot of work, but that's what democracy is about. Democracy is about work. If you don't do the work, you're going to get what you get. And you, and you can't stop. And, and, and this, the county being the poorest county, when y'all, I'm not from this state. I'm from Mississippi, so I'll just say that. So we got a lot of poverty in Mississippi. But people have power. So even if, we, if you are poor, you still have power. And so how can we flip that? Right? How we can use that power to make our community better. And I'm saying our because I, I say our a lot. But this is a collective will that we have to have. And so it's like reframing the negative to a positive. What do you want to have? What do you need? What do the kids need? What do the schools need? What kind of jobs do you need? What kind of industries do you need? And then you request those things. And that's what I think is the, this is a bigger picture, right? So that's part of the process. You have this part of it, but you also have to be working on that as well. Okay, so I'll stop. What Sir Kobe Wilson said is, is important, and that's where after we hit a couple of people, I really want to get to with all of us in this conversation is in terms of the politics, in terms of the zoning, in terms of the community, and health. What is the power? How, who has it, and how do you get it? Well, I, I mean, can we go here first and come over there? We're talking about power and politics, and uh, when I first got into this uh, several months ago... And you are from where? Sturgis, from Northampton County, Virginia, and I realized what was getting ready to happen in my county. I was uh, looking for information about what was... uh, what would be a model zoning ordinance that would protect us against uh, a large number of CAFOs and whatnot. I looked all over the state of Virginia, and it seems that simultaneously within the course of about 18 months, all the rural zoning was under pressure and had been converted to poultry farm-friendly zoning. People were shut out of meetings. People were not allowed to speak at uh, zoning commission meetings. It was like there was this nefarious plot. And I, I did, I, you know, so I got a little suspicious. You did some research. Some research. And I'm getting ready to write an open letter to the governor of Virginia, Mr. McAuffey. I came across an exe- and I'm going to publish it in the Richmond Times, and I'm hoping to get some uh, people with a little clout to sign on with me to this endeavor, and hopefully I won't disappear. Um, Executive Order Number 26, October of 2014. He's proclaiming that uh, agriculture is going to be Virginia's way out of our economic slump. And I quote, With agriculture as our largest industry, the Commonwealth will use these assets as we seek to increase agriculture and forestry shipments worldwide and become the East Coast capital for agriculture exports. Well, July 22nd of 2015, he appears before the Virginia Poultry Growers Cooperative to open a $62 million expansion to a poultry processing plant in uh, Rockingham County, and he uses the same terminology. By supporting strategic investments like this, we continue to build a new Virginia economy and better position the Commonwealth to be the East Coast leader for agriculture exports. So I have a pretty good idea where the pressure came to change all the zoning in the rural counties of Virginia, and I'm mad as hell. Thank you for that. Sir. I'm Reverend Charles Bagley. I'm the uh, incoming president of the uh, NAACP for Somerset County. 
co-laborer with uh, Dr. Kirkland Hall. Um, we've we've talked about these issues um, uh, for for quite a while. Uh, we've gone through quite a bit ever since uh, I've come moved down here. I'm not. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and I moved down here because uh, uh, spent a life of. Uh, in Department of Public Safety and Corrections and the police department, and I just needed to get down to the country where I could enjoy my retirement. But I was listening to uh, a lot of what uh, uh, also with um, Mr. Uh, Hayward was saying as well, and education is a good thing. But I tell you, the thing is, is that first of all, you have to be a person that gives a damn. You got to. I came down here, and before, I've only been living down here since 2007. And when I came down here, and I I set up house, um, my wife and I, but the thing was, was that I began to involve myself because I was involved when I was in Baltimore. I was in, I was the president of the community association. I ran for city council. I, I was always involved. I volunteered for different things. But when I heard about I had this expectation of what my, I wanted my life to be down here on the shore. And the thing is, when I said, when I heard something, I just, just briefly, just because a lot of times, because the information doesn't get around a lot, yes, I do go to the library. Yes, I do read the two papers that they have in Somerset County. And when they said something about wind turbines, the only thing I could think about was when I'm going up the strip of 40, to New Jersey, up to uh, Atlantic City, uh, where my wife is from, and I see these huge, huge wind turbines sitting out there. And I'm saying that they're going to put, I need to find out something about this. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I gave a damn. And I got up and I went to the meetings. And people started to call meetings. And, and, and then uh, I, and I went out and I got involved because I do have... Uh, a quality of life that I expect for myself while I'm here and my wife. And, you know, I, I look at it. It's, it's profit more than people. Profit more than people. Um, and being a, being a minister myself, I understand that it says that the borrower is a slave to the lender. That's in Proverbs. And you borrowing money, so the fact is you're going to be intimidated. They're going to make you do things that you're going to you're going to compromise. You're going to cut corners. But the thing is, is that, like I said, I come to these meetings. I gather information. I put it in a format. I find it, and I try to get it out to people, whosoever will. I can't make them come, but I know when I sit there in the commissioner's meeting, I know if the fact is my voice as an advocate would be a lot louder if the people that gave a damn was behind me. So, so let, let's, let, let, let's talk a bit now about where we are here in this four-state issue and, and talk about what power and, and what individual communities are doing, but what they're also facing in terms of the power. People have alluded here tonight a lot to questions of the power of, of industry and, and money to determine what's happening, changing zoning in Virginia without inviting communities in to have their say. Uh, things are happening in these communities here in Maryland the same way. So, and what happened in, in, uh, in, in, in Northampton. So, so let's talk a bit about that. What, is, what are our perceptions about that power, but also what are the perceptions about what people can do, especially on the issues that brought you all here, which have to do with businesses from outside 
coming into these communities and putting up the houses that you can't control and are trying to control. Kathy? Um, I just would like to tell the story to folks in the room who aren't from Somerset County and haven't taken part in the process that Backbone Road Corridor, or Backbone Corridor Neighbors Association started. It is scary to try and take power and to get engaged, especially here on the Eastern Shore, because um, there is a, uh, you know, people fear speaking out. And when people do speak out, and believe me, I'm one of them, I know, you know, you are going to get a target on your back. You have to be the type of person that is not intimidated by getting that target on your back. That being said, you know, two, three, four, five, maybe a half a dozen citizens along Backbone Road went to their planning commission. They went to their county commissioners, who then passed them off to their planning commission. And they brought Dr. Wilson in, and they brought other experts, and they brought Maria. Uh, they asked for, and they did get from Somerset County Planning Commission, a special meeting to be able to put their case forward and ask for help from their officials. That room was maybe about the size of this room, maybe a little bit smaller. And they were faced with approximately 70, 75 um, poultry farmers and other farmers and the Delmarva poultry industry that all came into the room. Um, It was very intimidating. It was their opportunity, it was their meeting with, it was these citizens meeting with Somerset County officials. They asked for it. It was to be their discussion with the officials. When you look out on a room that has everybody sitting there with their arms crossed across their chest, for all I know, they, and and a number of them, thought that what was happening at that meeting was that their poultry houses were going to be shut down by these people who were coming in to talk to the planning commission. There was one poor Mexican gentleman who didn't speak English, and I think he went on for like 20 minutes, you know, just crying to the planning commission because what little bit I could pick out of there, he was absolutely convinced that at the end of that night, he wasn't going to be able to have his farm anymore. And I want to give credit to these folks because even though that first meeting was so difficult and so intimidating, and all of this good, learned, scientific information from Johns Hopkins University and from University of Maryland and from other sources that were put there in front of the committee and, and of the planning commissions, and they basically ignored it. Even still, these folks kept moving forward, and they kept communicating with their officials, and they kept asking, when is the next meeting? When are we going to have an opportunity to talk about this again? And to their credit, um, the Somerset County right now is about to put out for public comment some new zonings. Um, uh, or, well, they're going to amend zoning ordinances. Um, most of it has to do with a little bit bigger setbacks here and there, which really is just a Band-Aid. It's not going to fix the problem. But there are a couple of uh, changes that I think are very important and are the first time it's happened on Delmarva. So, um, you know, to people who maybe are afraid to step forward, you just have to understand, you know, 
we have a movement going on here. And there are people here who will give you the support and the tools and the resources you need. And you just need to keep pushing forward because some good things, they're baby steps, but some good things are happening in Somerset County. In Pennsylvania, 200 people overflow. They had to move out into the parking lot for that meeting uh, where that health ordinance was getting passed. Um, so there is, there is power in community. Um, there is power in education, to what the gentleman said in the back. And um, everybody just needs to work together. And personally, we will continue to provide these forums as long as we possibly can. And I'd love to have standing room only at the next one. But not standing room only with somebody trying to intimidate the folks who are asking for change. I want to see standing room only where people are going to work together to make this um, a healthier community for everybody. So, certainly concur with your comments. Dr. Kirkland Hall, former president of the Somerset County NAACP and advisor to the UMES chapter. And uh, I say I want to first forwardly commend Sister Maria and others. Uh, who have put uh, this uh, this uh, uh, panel discussion and brought the interview? I mean, we got people from Northampton to to Millsboro, Delaware. That that that, that that's, that's a mile. And Pennsylvania, my goodness. <laughs> and, and, and that means that 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 that's power in what we are doing. Uh, this these are baby steps we're taking, but you said already we've already made some steps. But if we continue being committed into what we're doing, and as opposed to when the meeting's over, call somebody uh, in, in the county offices or someone else or that's, that's, that's in charge. They're in a meeting tonight, and this is what was discussed. So be ready, so be prepared. But we stay together, and everyone uh, uh, agrees that we are on the, we agree with the, with the issues that we have before us. We, we, we stand together as, as one voice. We've been amazed at, at, at what we can accomplish. But you also made another cogent point about the fear factor. And that, to me, is what I find in Somerset, is that so many people, are, their lives are contingent on what the commissioners and other folk in high position, their jobs are contingent upon that, their livelihood. So thus, they're not going to say much. That's why Reverend Bagg and Brother Haywood and others like that come into play, that we've got to be the voice for those that are voiceless. But again, I commend you for your comments, those who came tonight. You know, I can't say enough. This is little old Somerset. To have this type of activity going on in Somerset is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for y'all for coming. It is a change. <laughs> it is a change. You know, one of the things on the, on the way back there, um, before I turn to the questions up here, I want to also get back into why... It's so easy to, for politicians to debunk the science that Jillian and, and Sokobi put out there, and I'm going to talk a bit about that because I think it's important to get to. But I, I, this, I, I want to turn to Carol Marson for a minute on my way back to the back, um, just, just to the, cause, and then we'll come back to you, ma'am. Um, it, just because we were talking about the question of power and standing up, and some people, I don't know how many people know Carol Marson in this room, but you will in a minute. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm Carol Morrison, and I live in Pocomoke, uh, Worcester County, and I am a former contract poultry farmer. I raised chickens under contract uh, for 23 years. 
anyway, um, everything that's been said here tonight, I, you know, it does happen. Uh, the fear factor's there. I've lived under the fear factor. Um, my only problem was, was that I didn't get afraid. I got mad. What we have going on here now is not farming. I am still a farmer, although I don't raise chickens under contract. I raise chickens out on pasture and sell their eggs. We do not have what I call community neighborhood farming going on here. We have people coming in who are doing developments, just like houses, except these are not for people, they're for chickens. It's the only difference. The owners have no tie to the land, no tie to the communities. And we're not talking about a farmer adding a couple of chicken houses to the farming enterprise. And when we talk about what comes back to the community and the amount of money that, you know, is made from these enterprises on the farm, um, when I started out, uh, the industry was trying to get farmers interested in building chicken houses and I well remember the advertisement on television I don't know I'm probably telling my age here Um, but a, a, a very prominent member of our community who happened to also own a chicken company uh was on tv saying um part time work for full time pay now it is advertised as supplemental income to your farming enterprise. What the hell happened? I never did see the part-time work for the full-time pay, and I don't see now why you should have to supplement your income with over a million-dollar investment. I don't get it. Uh, studies show that you know contract farmers only make 0 to 3% return on investment. And these are legitimate studies that have been done by universities. You know, what's the deal here? There's no money coming back into the communities. Now, I've been fortunate enough to have a person approach me who is known throughout the um, CAFO developing world uh, that intended to build some chicken houses, develop near me. Um, you know, and during our conversations, uh, he told me point blank, you know, when I threw all these numbers out there at him and I was like, you know, you know, you're not making any money off of these. He started laughing and said, well, you let somebody else pay for them. And I thought to myself, what are you talking about? And then when you start adding it all up, all of the external costs that go out to the communities through taxes, uh, state programs, we're going to take care of your manure. Uh, the company is going to, uh, it's my understanding that the bonus, if you build six chicken houses, one is free. That is the bonus, that incentive that's being offered. But you still have a million-dollar debt that you have to pay off of chickens you're going to make a 0 to 3% return on. I don't get it. So now I do because you let somebody else pay. And it may not be in dollars you're paying with. You could be paying through your neighborhood, your loss of enjoyment of your life where you live, uh, diseases spread around, unhealthy air and water for you to consume, and the list goes on and on and on. 
Where is the benefit? Why do the citizens within the community have to pay so that a very small handful reap the benefits and get the jingle in the pocket? The money has to come back to the communities. That's where communities are dying. Ma'am, your name? Thank you. My name is Leila Borrero Kraus. I am listening to all of you. I am here with an organization called Farm Workers Support Committee. We're based in Glassboro, New Jersey, Kennedy Square, Pennsylvania, and now here in Salisbury, Maryland. I have been an advocate for farm workers for several years. I have worked in different positions in this community, especially with the immigrant community. They are the voiceless. They are the one they're suffering. They are the underserved. They are the one that are not getting the communication, the education that is happening here. And that's why I'm here today. Um, I have heard so many stories, and I have been working with so many immigrants in different positions. And when I listen to them and their families that live near the poultry uh, houses, and how they go and pick up the death ch chickens, they have no, with ammonia, as she said, and they have no protective gear, and they're exposed to all that manure. They work in the fields as well. They're exposed to more with the pesticides, and they have no education. I'm sorry he laughed, but I was going to tell him, I'm here to do that education. I'm here to do that education, and I speak their language. And sorry I didn't know about the gentleman, the gentleman who was the Mexican. I would have been there to be able to speak with him or, you know, be on his side and give him some more support. I have worked in many capacities. I work with legal aid. I have worked with Catholic charities. I'm not known maybe to any of you over here, but I'm known in the immigrant community. Yes, I do. Uh, I do immigration also, so I help in many aspects of the immigrant community. Working with legal aid, I have spent many hours traveling through the entire state of Maryland and Delaware. Now I go to Pennsylvania, Delaware, I go to New Jersey, and I'm over here in the Eastern Shore. I'm a resident of Wacomico County. My husband worked, and he died here, and he worked for the ECI. So I'm very familiar with this community and the underserved, the one, the disposable and exploited. That's right. And they, um, their families, they come here to better themselves. They come here to do a work that many would not do. Many U.S. citizens, unfortunately, would not do. And they lack of communication, uh, language barriers knowing where to go or how to go about it. So that's why I'm here to let you all know I'm here and I will be, as long as I can, to help the immigrant community. But not only that, I live here too. And I live near farms. I live in Mardella Springs. And we have, I have chicken houses right directly across from my house. I have a swimming pool that I cannot enjoy because the smell. Uh, I have to put extra money in my house 
because the water system, so the nitrate. I have to buy extra things to clean my bathroom because the rust. And I've seen that in some many houses that I have visited with my community, especially the ones that work in the, in the poultry industry. So let me take one aspect up here. I, I mentioned that I'm going to kind of help figure out where we're taking all this um, and what goes next. Uh, but I asked a question earlier about uh, several people in the panel, people have mentioned that science is done, but it's always ignored. Uh, the comment I've heard from industry is that it's not sound science. So a lot of you are probably familiar with this, but federally or nationally and here in this region, there has been um, a lot of pressure on scientists, reduction in funding, um, rejection of scientific findings, uh, kind of a rejection of intellectual pursuits in general, um, particularly on one side of the political spectrum, but it affects the a lot of our politicians, um, as you all have seen on your planning commissions. What folks are saying about organizing communities and taking your power and organizing, bringing people together, attending the meetings, finding more people, educating folks so more people give a damn, that is absolutely necessary along with the science. And the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins, we are dedicated to translating the science so that you don't have to fill up your whole kitchen table. It's important for people to educate themselves. But a lot of times we can summarize the findings and, tr and try to um, make it, put it in a format so that folks can understand it and it's easily communicated to policymakers. But none of it can operate on its own. When you go to a policymaker, no matter what the issue is, if you give them scientific evidence, no matter how ironclad it is, what they're thinking is, bring the voters to make me care. And some of them will actually say that behind closed doors, but that's what they're thinking. If they are not pressured to do something about what the scientific studies say, then it won't happen. And look at the, look at the Chesapeake Bay restoration effort. This has been going on for decades, and animal density continues to go up, even in places where they've already been identified as nutrient hotspots, way too much manure for the uh, capacity of the cropland to absorb, and it continues to go up even with the attention on the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So that highlights the very important issue where the scientific evidence on its own will never be enough unless it's a totally easy decision and there's no opposition, and those aren't the issues that we're working on. We're working on issues where there's very intense opposition. There's also misinformation and polarization so that the agricultural community, it's very easy for in the networks that they operate in um, to uh, the information that they're given tends to make an us versus them type of environment. So it's the citizens that can fight that by talking to neighbors and saying, you know, this isn't about ending agriculture. This isn't about regulating agriculture to the point where we push it off the shore. It's exactly what Shakobi said. There needs to be a vision for what we want to bring into the community. And if you think about agricultural systems, like I mentioned before, there is a huge opportunity in terms of creating regional food systems where it, there is attention to social justice, worker health, environmental impacts, public health impacts, 
people really want food that's created responsibly. And when you create diversified farms, it creates more agricultural jobs, agricultural jobs that people will be proud to have. They hopefully would be exposed to less pesticides, less chemicals on down the line. That was the second part of A Game of Chicken. It was a town hall conversation that I moderated in Princess Anne, Maryland, at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, with citizens who were mobilizing against the expansion of CAFOs, or concentrated animal feeding operations, on the Eastern Shore. This conversation was presented by the Asti Coastal Trust and the Asti Coast Keeper. We're going to bring you the rest of this conversation, A Game of Chicken, next week. So send me your thoughts and questions to talk at steinershow.org. We have to take a very brief break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll hear about the Beginner Farmer Training Program, a project of Future Harvest CASA, which stands for Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture. We'll meet some fascinating young people who are taking the training to become the next generation's farmers. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here. Um, you're listening right now to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, also broadcast on Del Marvel Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. So here on Sound Bites, we're about to have a conversation, which we've had done many years in a row here, because it's a fascinating kind of program that exists on uh, the, the CASA's Future Farmer Program, training people to become farmers uh, with experienced farmers, and we are joined by Sarah Sohn, who is the Future Harvest Casa, Casa which they are, a program manager. Good to have you with us, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you so much. And Arsar Mesh Amin is with us, and Asar is currently a trainee and manager of the Fannie Lou and Sundal Akoli Farm, Community Farm here in Baltimore City. Good to see you, Asar. Good to Always. see you, too. And Laura Beth Resnick joins us, program graduate, soon-to-be trainer in the program, and owner and farmer at Butterbee Farm in Pikesville. It's good to have you here. Well, Thank you. So let's take a step backwards for our listeners who have not heard about CASA before. And Sarah, if you just explain what CASA means and what it stands for. Sure, yeah. So it's a, it's a long name, but um, our full name is Future Harvest CASA, and CASA is an acronym that stands for the Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture. So we're a nonprofit organization that encompasses the Chesapeake region, including Maryland, Virginia, mostly Northern Virginia, um, West Virginia, and Delaware. Um, and really what we're looking at doing is figuring out different educational networking and advocacy programs that we can run that help support sustainable agriculture, both in terms of its farmers and those who are looking to source locally and sustainably. So a key program for Future Harvest is our Beginner Farmer Training Program. That's a year-long intensive program um, that helps train up the next generation of new sustainable farmers in the region. And this has been going on a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been covering so, it for at least five or six years. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we um, are in our eighth season right now, and um, the program has just sort of grown and grown as both demand for local food and demand for training um, for new and aspiring farmers has grown. So um, the program has had a huge impact on Baltimore City and County um, in particular because its origins were sort of there. Right. But we now have 13 training farms spread throughout the region, including on the eastern shore. Um, we looking to have more trainees next year, um, as well as maintaining our, our core areas like Baltimore County. So, uh, so Laura, let me go, go to you next. Just, I just want to kind of pull out some 
people get a sense and feel for what it was like to go through this training. Um, you're working with an experienced farmer. So what does that mean? So exactly what happens? What, do you, what, did you, what happened that year? Right. Well, um, starting in January, the first thing you do is you go to the Future Harvest Casa Conference. Oh, yes. Annual conference. I didn't make it this year. I go almost every year, but I didn't get oh, to this Oh, good. I, saw, I probably saw you there then. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, yeah, so you go and you meet all the other trainers and trainees. So that's the first thing that happens. And then you go to a series of nine workshops at the Future Harvest um, Casa. I guess it's a collaboration between Future Harvest and University of Maryland, I think, at um, the Ag Center in Cockeysville. Right. And that's a series of classes on all aspects of farming, from business, small business planning, to how to work a market, to um, just a general overview of certain different farms that are in the area. And um, that's a great opportunity to just learn more in general and also get to meet other trainees and talk to them more. And then throughout the season, you work at least one day a week on your trainer's farm. And that's the hands-on portion of the program. Free labor for the farmer. Just <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, but, but you're, I'm just joking. So, but, but, you're, so, but literally your hands are in the dirt and you're working on the farm. Yes. Yeah, it's great because at the, at, as you're doing the program, as you're working with your trainer, you're also starting your own farm. That's the idea. Or, or you know, you're, maybe it's your second or third year, but you're a beginning farmer. You don't really know what you're doing. And you get to learn about how to plant this thing or how to harvest this thing. And then you go back to your own farm and you do it on your farm. So I'm going to come back to that, that the very thought. And Oscar, I mean, so this is your, your – now you're just starting, right? I'm just starting in the program. So what's your time been like? Uh, it's been wonderful. When did you start? I started in um, actually with the, with the classes that were in Cockeysville. Um, in January? So in January. Okay. So, um, but I actually started on the farm in early April with the hands-on. I'm at uh, Calvert's Gift Organic. Oh, yeah, farm. right, right, yeah. 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 And Sparks, yes, yeah, right. Yeah, Sparks, Maryland. So it's been awesome. Um, the most important thing is that you're given a wealth of information, but you're able to take that information and apply it right there, have somebody that has years of experience to run your questions past. And then I can take that those skills and then apply it right at the Fannie Lou Hamer, Sundiata Coley Community Garden, or any other initiatives that I'm working on throughout Baltimore. And um, it, uh, it, it is an excellent learning process, and um, it is it's valuable. It's invaluable for, for when I am teaching now, like, young children that come to the farm or, or am I, if I'm in a community garden, I'm able to answer their questions uh, proficiently because I'm learning directly from uh, beginner farmer trainees. Because you've, uh, you've been working at Fannie Lou Hamer Sundiata for how long now? Uh, this has been the first <coughs> season. First season? First season. So and this, is, and this, is, the, this is the beginning of your, of your time with your hands in the earth? No, it's not. Um, my father was a sharecropper from Georgia, and uh, that, that uh, agrarian lifestyle and that culture, it's, it's in me. It was something that was taught to me. So, um, yeah, I began um, with that and working in community gardens and um, throughout the city and doing workshops on urban farming, like uh, making your own earth box or how to compost small And what's scale. an earth box? Um, a self-watering <clears throat> container. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make your own self-watering container out of a storage container. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, those things were really my primer into agriculture. But this is a larger scale. This is larger scale agriculture, organic agriculture. And um, CASA really focuses on um, the business aspect of farming as well, not just growing food, but how to make it a sustainable um, um, institution. You know, um, um, so spent a lot of time in classes learning about how to um, prepare um, y- your, your business plan. You know, and um, what what uh, 
crops or what are you going to grow or are you going to go into animal husbandry? Is it going to be chickens or, or small ruminants or is it going to be vegetables or is it flowers? And see, those things were um, those those options were given to us in training so that now you, you just really have a bigger picture of agriculture. It's not just vegetables. It's much more. Right, 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 right. Mm-hmm. Well, eye-opening. Yes, most definitely. And, and you were a farmer before this. You'd already been working on a farm. Is that right? Yeah. After I graduated from undergraduate college in 2011, I started working on farms up and down the East Coast just to get some experience. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do for my work and really enjoyed farming and started to really enjoy the entrepreneurship aspect of it, too. And then when I moved back to Baltimore, I had, you know, maybe like three seasons of farming under my belt at different places. And I wanted to start an urban vegetable farm and got hooked up with Future Harvest and ended up doing flowers instead. But it's all really the same. You know? So you're growing flowers? <laughs> yes, actually, it's a cut flower farm. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so what I'm, I'm curious, before we bring Sonia back, uh, Sarah back in, um, what, what, what drove you to farming? I mean, you didn't grow up on a farm, and you, your, your father might have grown up on a farm, but you grew up here. I did. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, I mean, starting out, Laura, I mean, so what, I mean, what drives somebody like you, a young woman from the suburban world, to become a farmer? Right. Oh, gosh. Farming is just everything great and ecstatic about life and also everything really hard and challenging about life in one beautiful setting. And that allows me to really feel fulfilled every day because I'm always confronted with my challenges and the successes and, you know, even the small things like, yay, so I planted this larkspur seed and it germinated. That's so exciting. <laughs> yay. <laughs> you know, didn't think that would happen. Or, oh, no, like we were talking before, maybe it rains and like some, a bed gets completely washed away and all your seedlings are gone and you're know, having to deal with that. And it's just it's incredibly fulfilling just going through those waves of, you know, everyday life in this really small way. Yeah, and I mean, I, I know you said your dad grew up on a farm and sharecropping in the south, but you're an urban guy, right? Right, well, city I, man. I'm an urban guy, and uh, I love to eat. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, uh, no jokes aside. Um, well, um, being here in Baltimore, looking at um, food insecurity. And working with different um, nonprofit organizations and grassroots organizations like women and other um, grassroots organizations in Baltimore, you, you start to understand that uh, major problems in our community is food insecurity, health and wellness. And the source of that is growing high-quality, nutrient-dense food. Not only that, but uh, having that food be available to people um, at a price that they can afford. Um, mm. And then on top of that, we also have uh, a lack of jobs and infrastructure that supplies jobs in the city. And agriculture is one of those things that is a that can be a major source of um, income for families or for individuals in the city. And I think that um, education around agriculture in schools is very important because it, it, uh, sheds, it, shines, it shines light for students to see what other opportunities there are. You know, um, a farmer is really a scientist, you know, and it goes hand in hand with science. And um, so uh, th- those those are the things that drew me into agriculture. You know, um, like with one project I'm working with now with um, Park Heights Community Health Alliance and Park Heights Renaissance, um, this, this coalition is um, 
actually working towards trying to create uh, an edible garden throughout Park Heights that's in walking distance. You know, so um, those, those sorts of things fuel me. You know, working with friend of a friend, um, coalition, and Marshall Eddie Conway. You know, these these the, these are the people who have basically um, also been my teachers. You know, that have pointed that this is the direction that we should move in. You know. So that's that's important. I mean, to, to get out the kind of things that motivate people to go through. So I guess what you there's so much I want to pull out of what you two just said. But let me ask Sarah. I mean, that. Historically, I mean, this has been a very diverse group of people from across coming for these different reasons. How many people have gone through this so far? How many are still with their hands in the land? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just underwent um, a full survey of all the graduates and current trainees in the program. And by the end of this year, we will have graduated um, nearly 60. And the vast majority of them, about 75%, are still farming full time. So it's really pretty good statistics and I think speaks to the effectiveness of the program and how thorough it is and really teaching people not just how you um, go about germinating seeds well, but also how you actually make your business work as a business. Um, So we are looking next year um, to bring in a brand new crop of folks um, and and our deadline is October 9th, so it's coming up soon, so we're very happy. Oh, for applications, you mean? The word. Yeah, so applications are due October 9th. Um, all the information for those applications are on our website, which is futureharvestcasa.org. And people um, should, if they're at all thinking that, you know, maybe farming um, is, is in the stars for them, but they're a little bit unsure about next steps, whether they can make it work as a as a career option. We really encourage you to apply and, and reach out to us. Um, so, so yeah, we're looking forward to seeing all these fabulous new applications. Um, we're always really impressed by the folks that we get. And, yeah. Um, even if people aren't um, quite ready for the program this coming year, we have a lot of other educational opportunities that will get them ready um, in another year with a year-round programming and our conference, so we're, it's a great time of day to, to find out who the next stars in the farming world are. <laughs> October 9th, you said, was the date, right? October 9th, yeah, yeah it's a Friday. And we'll put that on our website as well, futureharvestcasa.org. Um, so I'm curious about the, the path people take. I mean, when you, when you started this out, Laura, you said you were farming flowers, right? Right. Was that was that was that was that a a business choice in terms of where you thought you could make a living doing the work? It was a business choice. It was entirely logical. Actually, um, totally unrelated to farming. But my sister was getting married at the time that I was starting the vegetable farm, and I was doing her wedding consultation with the florist because I was local and she wasn't. And the florist said that she'd buy everything from me if I grew flowers instead of vegetables. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great opportunity. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's how it happened. So is this a, does this happen? Are you doing this like all year round in greenhouses or all? That's a great question. No, we, uh, we are on season um, selling and growing about six months out of the year. And the other half of the year, we are either on, you know, mild vacation <laughs> for maybe the month of <laughs> January. Uh-huh. And then we're getting the farm either ready or we're getting it cleaned up. So in February and March, we're getting the farm ready. We're planting seeds. We're getting out in the field when we can. We're doing a lot of planning, a lot of marketing. 
and and then the season happens and we're busy with that and then during the off season november and december we're cleaning up the farm and we're starting to plan for the next year it's interesting i've been a couple people in this program who have gone through casa that have ended up being flower farmers so it's kind of interesting to hear you know what what motivates and pushes folks to to do that um I think it's good. I mean, it's a good business model, and it's also beautiful. It is beautiful. I, I, will, I will say that Laura Betts has inspired, along with some other young flower farmers, some of whom have also gone through the program, a little bit of a local um, sustainable flower renaissance in the area. And we have already seen some applications come in for this year um, with, with people who are explicitly interested in, in growing cut flowers and, and training with Laura Betts. So it's... Um, it's a really sort of full circle thing where she's she's coming back and influencing the program. That's good. So that you're, so you're going to come back to teach. That's right. So uh, I, I kept, let me jump back here to a minute to to uh, Asa on to, to uh, I, I want to get some of the beginning of this program you started and what the significance for you and for the community is of Fannie Lou Hamer and Sundi Adekoli. What 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 is that? Talk a bit about that history. Well. Um I was uh, working um, in connections through a nonprofit um, called Woman, and uh, just doing some youth education, just volunteering around the school. And um, I ran into Marshall Eddie Conway. We got in, we got connected, and he was saying that we have a lot of land that's around here that needs that could be farmed. It could be uh, it could work as a outdoor classroom for these students. Um, we could grow food here and. and and teach children how to grow food and possibly grow some food for the community. Um, and he said, can you help me? You know, and uh, I took on that challenge. And, <laughs> you know, um, that, that, that whole process, uh, that's pretty much how this started. And, and that, that whole process has just been life-changing for me, life-changing, because um, we have grand plans to be able to incorporate possibly um, CSAs, um, uh, in Gilmore Homes because uh, their organization is already working on food drives, clothing drives, school supplies drives in that area. Um, they've been doing that for a, a while now. So, um, you know, trying to incorporate more healthy food with that as well um, is, a, is, 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 a, is a mission that is, um, that is necessary, you know. Um, but in addition to that, during the winter time, when when we first started, because uh, we built some raised bed boxes at the Fang Lou Hamer, soon out of Coley Garden, and uh, the children saw the boxes and didn't know what they were. So we had to do a lot of education, youth education around that. So every Wednesday um, during the winter time, even when there was snow on the ground, we we held a class. Uh, it was about an hour and a half, two hours long, and really just went over the basics with children. They started seeds. Um, they learned about composting. They learned about soil biology, and um, they loved it. They loved it. And then to be able to come out into the actual garden in the spring, yeah, it was it was phenomenal. And um, the, when we started the farm, we also became part of the Farm Alliance in Baltimore, so that allowed us to have access to shared tools like a greenhouse, so the children could start seeds, and then the seeds could go to the greenhouse in Germany, and then they could put those seedlings in the ground, you know. Um, through Farm Alliance of Baltimore. Uh, that's one real important thing about agriculture in Baltimore is the community. Because in doing that, and just starting the Fannie Lou Hamer soon out of Coley Garden, I also was able to come across different farmers and learn different skills and um, get in contact with Chesapeake Compost, which is a local composting facility. And we were able to get 
good local compost for the Fang Luhamer garden, able to turn that soil that's never been worked, that was pretty much fill, fill dirt, and transform it into a very dynamic, alive soil again. You know, and the children were able to see that and understand the benefits of hard work. And, you know, it's just, it's just been... Well, I just I, I I'm always really excited to interview folks coming through this uh, Casas program, Future Harvest. I just think that it it's inspirational that that for the multitude of reasons and paths people take to get back to the earth and try to create a new way of doing farming, a new way of doing this work. I think it's really critically important to our future, and I'm it's always exciting to meet younger people out there who are just jumping into this and making it happen. And I'm I'm looking forward to getting out there and hanging out at Fenny Lou and also hanging out at Butterbee and seeing what you two are doing in the, as, as uh, next season, of course, because we're, almost, we're do- almost done now, but to see what you all are doing. So I want to thank you both for being here, and, and Sarah, first of all, uh, uh, Laura Beth Resnick, um, who graduated the program as owner and farmer at Butterbee Farm, making flowers in Pikesville, and Arsar Mesh Amman, who is a current trainee in Casa uh, and manager of the Fannie Lou uh, and Sundiata Coley Community Farm in West Baltimore. Uh, and, of course, Sarah Sohn, who is Future Harvest CASA Program Manager. Thank the three of you for being with us. And reminding you to go to the website, futureharvestcasa, C-A-S-A, futureharvestcasa.org, so you can apply uh, for the program in the coming year and become the next future farmer. Thank the three of you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Peace. you. Thanks for listening to Sound Bites today. Send me your thoughts and questions about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at DeMarvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Monifa Wilson, Sianna Greaves, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, the Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.